There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. And today we are going to talk about market timing, the history of market timing, its effectiveness, and even get into something called style drift. Greg, where do we go from here? Well, before we start, we should summarize where we've come from with regards to active management. So you recall the efficient market hypothesis which provided the basis for the development of index funds. And it gives us a benchmark against which we can compare more active approaches to stock investing. So just by way of summation, the efficient market hypothesis states, first of all, current prices incorporate all available information and expectations, that current prices are the best approximation of intrinsic value, price changes are due to unforeseen events, And mispricings can occur, but not in a predictable pattern that can lead to consistent outperformance. It's important to note that what the hypothesis does not state is that all investors are rational, that prices are always right, that prices should be stable, or that professional money managers can't earn higher than market returns. So now we'll continue on our evolutionary discussion of investing. Today, as Colin mentioned, we're discussing market timing, style drift, etc., Market timing is kind of a historical argument. It's almost a variation on the debate on active versus passive investing. Yeah, and there's a lot of data on active-passive, market timing, etc. There was an article in Forbes just in March of this year, March 2020. And the author, somebody named Jim Wang, who I've never met, but he says six reasons market timing is for suckers. Might be a little bit harsh, but let's go through what he identifies as the six reasons. Number one, we always think we can do this successfully. So what he's saying there is that we would need to have an edge over all other market participants. Number two, you don't have an edge against the pros. Now, you just don't actually because it's been removed by things like program trading, flash trading, algorithmic trading, and just information flow. Number three, in order for market timing to be effective for you, you need to be right a lot that it's not a one-time trade. I think people forget that, Greg, that it's in order to time a market successfully, you would need to know when to get in and when to get out repeatedly. Exactly. That's right. Number four, you need to be a full-time investor. So in other words, this is your job. You wouldn't have time for anything else. But here's the thing, Greg, this is our job. <laughs> so That's right. <laughs> number five, market timing is stressful. Now, this is evident from the roller coaster ride we've gone through from February to July. March being one of the most stressful times in anybody's lifetime that's alive today in regards to markets, April, May, and June being pretty good. So stress can't be discounted. And lastly, that the future is unpredictable. This is one we've talked about in a lot of presentations when we talk about things like news. The common argument is that I'll just get my information from the news, but in order for something to be news, it has to be new. And I actually don't get some of the trading that occurs these days. 
You'll have these big up or big down days in the markets. And the down days, they'll always point out to things like a second wave of COVID-19 or the fact that the globe is in a recession. It seems to me that none of that is new news. A lot of it, I think, too, is just the news of the day. So you'll see one day there'll be positive test results from a potential vaccine and the market will jump 600 points. And everybody knows that there's dozens of companies working on vaccines, but today it'll just be the news that one company had some promising results. Tomorrow it might just be a fear of continued economic pressure, something like that. So it is quite remarkable how one little piece of news or one item will catch the attention of a lot of traders and send the market up or down by quite a bit. Kind of scary times at times. That was scary. (laughs) Well, let's talk about what is market timing. So this is taken from the successful investor website of the TSI Wealth Network. Market timing theory attempts to interpret and detect buy and sell signals in trading patterns and history. And so that speaks to both technical analysis and we'll also get into just investor sentiment because both of these can have impacts on market timing decisions. So those patterns that people would look for would be patterns that would tell them that it's obvious that something's going to happen or has happened? That's right. And so when you look at market timing theory, it's attempting to interpret and detect buy and sell signals in trading patterns and in history. So some of the decisions you make with the help of market timing will bring you profits. Others may cost you money. And coming up with acting on a series of guesses or estimates or probability assessments to use in your buying and selling decisions. That's the goal. The aim is the same in 2020 as it was back in 1997 when the strategy first gained prominence, to buy near a low and sell near a high. And I think we all agree that if we could actually do that with any kind of certainty, we'd all be doing it all the time. Don't you find it interesting now when people will call and then say, I just need to get out because I need to wait for things to get better? Yeah. Isn't that kind of like selling low and buying high exactly what you don't want to do? Well, that's right. Because when you think of, well, when things get better, what do you think is going to be happening in the market? Well, the market's going to be going up. And so by the time you feel comfortable enough to get in, well, the market's already responded to that and it's already high. And so as you say, you might be selling low and buying high, the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. So many investors start out with kind of an exaggerated idea of the value and importance of market timing. And of course, many or most eventually become disillusioned with it when they figure out it's costing them money. And the problem is that market timing can pay off sporadically. The results are largely random. Successes and failures are apt to come in spurts. And in fact, the worst thing that can happen near the start of an investing career is you make a series of successful timing decisions. You know what, Greg? I know that quite well, this what you're just describing. And sorry to interrupt you, but it reminds me of when I was in college in North Dakota and I went to a licensed establishment and they had a blackjack table and I'd never played blackjack before in my life. And I made the mistake of winning $50 the first night I ever played blackjack. So then I just felt like it was obvious that I could just always win $50 if I just played. Exactly. But the outcome obviously wasn't that. And you see that in gambling like blackjack or even slot machines. And that is that you get reinforced occasionally. In psychology, that occasional reinforcement schedule is one of the most addicting because 
you believe you'll get it, but you're just not sure when. And so you'll keep trying and trying over again. And so as we were saying, and per your experience, when you have some early successes, it may lead you to believe that you've got a natural talent for it, or that you've stumbled on some sort of timing process that's a guaranteed moneymaker. Either of those conclusions can spur you back to future timing decisions with growing amounts of money. So good timing decisions often produce modest profits. They tend to be smaller than the losses you get from bad timing decisions. And needless to say, one of your future decisions is bound to turn out bad. If you've invested enough money in it, you could wind up losing much more than your accumulated winnings from prior timing-based decisions. Just another way of reinforcing that get-rich-versus-lose-everything portfolio we keep referencing. Yeah, that's right. And The best market timing strategy, in our opinion, is just to buy steadily and carefully throughout your working years and sell gradually in retirement. That approach is virtually certain to enhance your investing profits. And for one thing, it keeps you from selling all of your stocks near a market bottom, which market timers do from time to time. So talking about sort of coming to your own predictions or opinions about what's going to happen, one of the worst market timing strategies you can adopt is just yielding to hunches or jumping to conclusions. So this is the trading on your gut strategy? That's right. And I'm sure some skittish investors have been watching the market and trying to spot the next correction or temporary market setback. And of course, the problem is that any market decline could be the start of a market setback. So if you have a setback, say, of 10%, well, that could come along eventually. I mean, in the old days, we used to get a 10% correction in the market practically every year. So you should always expect one. Wasn't it statistically shown that on average, it is a 10% correction every calendar year? And I think that was the case up until about the last 10 years. So certainly the bull market that started back in 2009 after the credit crisis leading up to today, or at least pre-pandemic, we did not get that 10% downturn every year. And I think that led a lot of people to believe that it wasn't going to happen. So unfortunately, when you do get one, as, as we said earlier, you don't really know, is this just a 10% market correction or is this the beginning of another bear market? And trying to foresee those kind of setbacks are bound to cost you money. And that's because many of the setbacks you foresee just don't occur. We tend to be worriers, and there's lots of things to worry about in the world. And if you try to factor in everything that could go wrong, you would never invest a dollar. Well, you wouldn't get out of bed. <laughs> that's right. So what happens then, if you act on your prediction, sell, may miss out on profits. You may buy back in at higher prices, just in time for the market to undergo the next setback. So that's known as a double whipsaw. Basically, you were out and then you were in at exactly the wrong time. So eventually it does happen to a lot of market timers. And some react by giving up on market timing, others just give up on investing. And that would be a bad outcome for sure. Successful investors generally come to see occasional market setbacks as something you just have to live with. And the best way to protect yourself against them is to put money in the market only if you can afford to leave it there for some longer period of time, five years or even more. Yeah, that time period is an interesting discussion a lot of people talk about the time period. There's a difference in what people think of as long-term versus short-term. There's many investors that think long-term is a year. Yeah, that's right. Yet, if you talk to the academics, they say 40 years might not even be long-term. Particularly when you're trying to see if somebody's market results are a result of skill or just luck. It's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. We do have some investors who manage some of their own money or have accounts elsewhere and they'll tend to set up these horse races and they'll say, well, my account over here did, I don't know, 9% and the account that you have only did 
And you start digging into it and you look at things like the time period you're looking at, the asset allocation of the two different portfolios could be completely different. So there's so many other factors, yet it always goes back to, yeah, but in the last year. So this seems to be a mistake that's made quite often. Let's talk about the effectiveness of market timing. There's lots of data out there that shows what happens if you are successful or unsuccessful at trying to time the market. I know Dimensional Fund Advisors released an article recently called The Cost of Trying to Time the Market, which I guess is exactly what we're trying to talk about. So the data that they show says if you put in $1,000 in 1970 and you just left it, I guess in the S&P 500, to March of 2020. So that data would include what happened this March, that 35% sell-off in the U.S. stock market. And it says, well, what would have happened? So if you left that $1,000 in throughout the whole time period, it grew to $121,000. Pretty good. Not bad. If you missed the one best performing day. So one day you said, I don't want to be in the market on this day. And you sold out and you bought in the next day. And that just happened to be the one best performing day over a, what is that? A 50 year time period. Well, you lost $12,000. If you missed the five best days, you lost $44,000 compared to just leaving it invested. And this goes on and on. So that if you actually missed the best 25 days, so let's say you took it out March 23rd of this year, as an example, which was the low in the US market. And let's just hypothesize and say that the market went up like a straight shot from March 23rd to April 23rd. That may or may not have happened, but if that happened to have been the one month that had the best return in that whole 50-year time period, you did not end up with $121,000. You only ended up with $27,000. And that's missing the best 25 days out of 50 years. That means that you sold out maybe once every two years and you just happened to pick the wrong day to be out of the market. It just means that you didn't get that day's, those 25 days returns. It's remarkable. Well, yeah, and 25 days out of 50 years isn't a lot of days per year. Not at all. Look, the questions we're getting right now are things like, why are we invested in a global portfolio when everybody knows that things like tourism and consumer discretionary stocks are getting hammered? And why wouldn't we just load up on things like technology and healthcare stocks as those are all the rave? Greg, how would you reply to that question with a client? I would say that it's really impossible to predict there's, I'm not sure the exact number, let's say there's 10 major sectors that trade as part of the S&P 500. Well, everybody can look at what's going on right now. And with the benefit of hindsight, we're able to say, okay, well, gee, healthcare and technology sectors, they've done really well. And there's no reason to think they won't continue to do well in the future. And we definitely want to stay out of restaurant stocks or hospitality or airlines, because everybody knows that airline travel will never get back to the level it was. Well, those are all predictions and they're bets. And when I look at it and when I'm talking to clients, I say, look, clearly with the benefit of hindsight, we know that had we been in these sectors going back to the beginning of March or February, yeah, we'd be in great shape right now and we would have outperformed the market. However, the market already knows how bad things are in the airline sector or the hospitality sector, and the prices are reflecting that. So maybe over the next year or two, these beaten down sectors will be the best performers because they're starting at already a very low level 
and trading at levels that indicate a huge amount of risk. And as we know, when things are at their riskiest, they have the highest expected returns. It's counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive. And when you're trying to predict the sure thing, listen, we're talking about this four months later. These changes have already happened. So we can't turn back the clock and go back in time. And so you just can't make those predictions. It's one thing to have an opinion that, oh, well, I think technology stocks, for example, will continue to do well because of any number of reasons. But there's no guarantee that we won't see doubling or tripling of some of these beaten down sectors like restaurants, retail. Anything tourism related? Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. When we look at the results and, well, actually, let's go back to that discussion of, it's not like in February, we were sitting around talking about where we're going to invest money. We had a discussion around, well, with the upcoming global pandemic of (laughs) biblical proportions, we should move to cash. I mean, that just, it's not a realistic conversation. Not at all. But let's talk about the history of professional money managers and how they relate to market timing. I mean, the most documented one that we reference, and we're going to have to stop saying his name after this episode because we've brought him up a few times, but is Bill Miller and the Leg Mason Value Trust Fund in the U.S., We've brought it up before and with good reason, because for 15 straight years, Mr. Miller's fund outperformed the S&P 500, which is a pretty remarkable outcome in its own right. And it was so remarkable that there were many books written about him and others tried to sort of mimic the strategies that Miller was using. And it is reasonable to think that 15 years of data is long-term data and proof that it can be done. I mean, 15 years is better than one year. So... What happened to this fund? Well, what happened is in 2008, 2009, the fund gave back all 15 years of return and Bill Miller was fired. And interestingly enough, if you track his career afterwards, he was hired by another fund company, I don't remember who, and ended up being, I believe, one of the worst performing funds by performance the subsequent year and was fired again. And actually, I believe that more recently... He actually has had one of the top performing funds again. So he's back in the news. It's funny when you go back. Sadly, I remember that period of time quite clearly. It's burned into my memory. But what his mistake was, was making a big bet on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which were the U.S.-based home insurance companies, essentially, that were government agencies or quasi-government agencies, and and his belief was those would never go bankrupt, that those would not be allowed to go bankrupt because of their connection to the federal government. And in fact, those companies were allowed to go into governorship, which is almost like bankruptcy. And as you say, he wiped out 15 years of boat performance by making that bet. And he had all the best intentions, and obviously he thought he was doing the right thing, and it just didn't work out. It's not a sign that he had been brilliant for 15 years and suddenly became stupid. It was just a bet that didn't work out, but had big consequences. And when we talked a few episodes ago about torpedo stocks and how they affect a portfolio, this would be a classic example. And those two companies since then have actually basically been propped up by the U.S. government as agency mortgages, right? Yes. And probably today, if that had happened, it probably would have worked out. It's just bad luck. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and that brings us to another discussion that David Booth recently put out within the last two months. And he talks about, no, David Booth is the founder of Dimensional Fund Advisors. And the University of Chicago is called the Booth School of Business because David Booth went there and he gave a bunch of money to them. But what he talked about was how the market has no memory. 
that in order to time markets, you have to be right more than twice each time. Just what we said. You got to be right when to get out, when to get back in. As a matter of fact, you probably have to be right more than that because you got to know what to sell and what to buy. So you probably have to be right four times. And then once you get back in, the odds are still against you. So the house wins in this scenario. It's similar to a casino at that point. That's right. I want to just talk a little bit now about a couple of things which are kind of connected, style drift and tactical asset allocation. Now, tactical asset allocation is a deliberate move that active managers would make to change their asset allocation strategy based on some predictions about what's happening in the market and what's going to be happening in the future. Style drift occurs when a money manager goes in with a particular investing style, and then as the markets change, the style of investment management changes with the markets in order to try to capture what's going on in the markets right now, as opposed to sticking with a disciplined or investing philosophy. So you can think of style drift like getting a haircut, which I noticed, by the way, that it doesn't look like you've had a haircut this whole pandemic. I have not. (laughs) I don't know where to go to get one. (laughs) Well, good for you. I can tell you that they're open now. I did get a haircut, although in my case, it's more of a buff and polish. But anyway, they're open now, so feel free. (laughs) But when you get a haircut, it's presumed that you know exactly what you want your hair to look like and what you want it to be. But in between haircuts, what happens? Well, your hair grows, you can change your hairstyle, you can cut it and you can go back to the way you wanted originally, but it does change over time. And that's the concept of style drift. And style drift can occur primarily what we see it in is with mutual fund managers or hedge funds or things like that. So when I started in the business back in the mid-1990s, The concept of factor investing, which we talked about the last time, had been in the literature and fund managers had been using it in practice and fund managers would define themselves either as value managers or growth managers. So a value manager is a manager that's looking to capitalize on what we had talked about last time, that being that stocks that have low relative price, whether it's low price to earnings or low price to book values, that they believe that those kinds of companies and those kinds of stocks would provide higher returns over time. And so if they define themselves as a value manager, then the kinds of stocks in the portfolio should be value stocks. And so what happened in the late 1990s, that was the period of time when the technology bubble began to grow and technology stocks were all the rage. And what was happening is that a lot of these, what we'll call growth stocks, companies that had very high relative prices that were justified based on the fact that their earnings or book values could be growing at an even faster rate. So those growth stocks dramatically outperformed the typical value stocks. And a lot of the value managers felt they were being left behind and their performance was lagging the index by too great a margin. And so what you'd start to see is some growth type stocks find their way into the portfolio of these value managers. And by the end of it, by early 2000, a lot of value managers were holding a lot of growth stocks and technology names in their portfolios. And of course, in March of 2000, that all fell apart, the bubble burst, and these growth stocks and mainly technology stocks got trounced. In today's day and age, that would be weed stocks. It could be weed stocks. It could be technology names again, like right now. But again, what it is, is it's watching your investment philosophy and your investment style drift usually in relation to what's happening in the market. 
And so rather than sticking to the investment philosophy and maintaining your value proposition in terms of the nature of the stocks you're holding, you drift. And then, of course, you miss the recovery in value stocks when that ultimately happens. And of course, we know over time that value stocks are expected to provide higher expected returns. We're going through a period of like that right now, where value stocks have actually underperformed for most of the last 10 years. And that's not a situation we expect, but it happens to be the situation we're in. Does that mean value stocks will not ever outperform? Hardly. It just means that we've gone through a period like that. And so if you believe in a style, you have to maintain that style. Of course, when we get into talking about our own portfolios and how we capture the value premium, we do it in a slightly different way. We don't define a portfolio with strictly value or strictly growth, and that can help you out in times like this. Well, that's our opinion. Exactly. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the other thing which is similar, but more methodical is something called tactical asset allocation. And what tactical asset allocation is, is when the managers decide that based on something that's happening in the market, they want to change the overall, what we'll call a strategic asset mix. So for example, look at what's happened this year. In February of this year, the U.S. markets, well, and markets all around the world were trading at all-time highs. And so if your strategic asset mix was to have 60% of your portfolio in stocks, then in the middle of February, you would have been at 60% stocks, 40% bonds, let's say. So what happened in March? In March, the U.S. markets fell about 35%. So your asset allocation would have adjusted your equity position down from 60%, and maybe you would have been down to something like 40 or 45%. And that's without doing any trading. That's without doing any trading. That's just the market, the stocks going down a lot and the bonds basically staying the same, maybe going down a little, maybe going up a little. But there's no way on March 23rd, you were at 60% stocks, 40% bonds, if that's where you'd been a month ago. So if you didn't do anything to change that asset allocation, if you left it there, then in fact, what you're doing is you're making a decision that says, well, okay, I'm more comfortable today at only 45% in stocks. And that comfort level would have been based on what was going on, which was, it seemed like everything was going down and going down a lot. And so by maintaining the change and not rebalancing and buying more stocks, then you would have actually been making a tactical decision to change your asset allocation. And in the end, we happen to know now in hindsight that it would have been better to rebalance and to buy a bunch of stocks on March 23rd. It's a very specific kind of timing, but what it does speak to is the need to, if you want to maintain your strategic asset mix, you have to rebalance the portfolio. And if not, you have to accept the fact that you're changing the tactical asset mix of your portfolio. So that's like a decision where neither decision is right or wrong. It's just the outcome differs. That's right. And you only know in hindsight. And so that's why we need to make a decision going in to say, look, we have a strategic asset mix. We're going to maintain it. And we can offset that kind of drift in asset mix or style simply by doing regular rebalancing. So we want to make sure that the asset mix that we've chosen is based on our goals. And if we wanted to hold more volatility in a portfolio, we want to make sure that we can accept that volatility and that it's acceptable based on what our long-term financial goals are. So linking everything back to goals, because we fully admit that we cannot time markets effectively and that style drift does occur during cycles. But your goals must build that in. 
That's right. And having a defined investment philosophy and a strategy that you can live with through good markets and bad is absolutely the key to being able to have some kind of a positive investment experience regardless of what's going on. Well, let's finish up with something positive on another note. Greg, how many walks can a person do these days? Are you talking about walks for no purpose or walks for purposes of walking a dog? Both. (laughs) That certainly has become the main entertainment for most of us, I think, over the last few months. It is. And you know what's remarkable is in our house, we're starting to step back into things that I never would have imagined. I'm teaching my kids how to play crib. Why not? That's the kind of thing we did when we were kids. <laughs> yeah, but that is not a first, what do they call a first shooter game on Xbox? Like <laughs> That's right. <laughs> things have changed a bit. Exactly. Well, listen, I guess that does it for today. Thanks for joining us on the free lunch and we'll see you back here next time. Sounds great. See you then. All right. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.